What's up, everybody? My name is Athena, and you're here for another episode of Vanished in the Valley. As you can tell, my voice is just, like, properly fucked. So, I hope you can uh, (laughs) deal with all the scratching and squeaking. I'll try to make it short and sweet this week. Wanted to say Happy New Year to everyone. I'm really not expecting this year to be any better than fucking 2020 was. But we'll see. We can always cross our fingers and fucking hope. Today, we've got some updates for you. Uh, We've got an ID, finally, in the Mostly Harmless case, which I covered probably like two months ago. So if you want to hear like the full story and all the details... Just go search, I believe the name of the the episode was Vanished Family of the Mostly Harmless Hiker. Go check that out. Um, I'm going to, you know, just kind of cover just the basics of his story today and tell you all about who he is and how we got his identity. I'm also going to cover a missing persons case and I'm going to tell you about a little conspiracy brewing that has to do with Pizzagate the guy that busted it all open, and his murder. So sit back and get ready. Okay, so let's start with Mostly Harmless. He was an unidentified male hiker whose body was found on July 23rd, 2018 in Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. So Nicholas Horton and his buddy just happened to go on this hike one day. And it's a long-ass hike. It's like a 15-mile hike through Florida fucking, like, swamps, treacherous-ass animals, and it was the summer. So, you know, it was, like, balls hot. And Nicholas said something which just, like, kept pushing him on to keep on this trail and not turn around to go back to the parking lot. So they finally get to what's known as the Noble Campground, and they see a yellow tent. And after getting some snacks and kind of rejuvenating themselves from that long-ass hike, they kind of, like, nose around the tent and realize there's a dead body. And the dead body was mostly harmless. So they call the Collier County Sheriff's Department. They get detectives out there and some coroners. They don't think any foul play happened. So they get him back, do the autopsy and everything. And apparently, this man fucking starved to death. He starved to death alone out on the trails in Florida. And after searching his tent, they found no identification, no phone, no credit cards, but thousands of dollars in cash. So it's like, how does a motherfucker starve to death when they've got thousands of dollars in cash? He was just a few miles away from an area where he could re-up on food and snacks. So it was just a huge mystery. So... What the Collier County Sheriff's Department did was have an artist kind of just like do a sketch of his face because obviously they don't want to put a dead body, (laughs) a dead body picture up asking if anybody knows this guy. And somebody in a hiking group on Facebook actually recognized him as a man she had met a few months earlier who had introduced himself as Mostly Harmless. So after Mostly Harmless is recognized In that Facebook group page, he kind of just like became this choose your own adventure mystery. 
There had been a few other people that had met him on the trails. Some people knew him as Denim. Some people knew him as Ben Bellamy. And we just started getting like little bits and pieces of information about him. A few pictures kind of turned up from other hikers that had met him on their way. And other people had stories of spending a few days walking down the Appalachian Trail with him. But all of that mystique, all of that choose-your-own-adventure shit that, you know, people had done to fill in the blanks about mostly Harmless's life has kind of come to an end. Today, he's a skeleton stored in the medical examiner's office in Naples, which is kind of by the Gulf of Mexico, way down in Florida. And despite the pictures... Despite the Reddit groups, the sleuthers, the little podcasters like me spreading his story, his identity remained a mystery until probably less than a month ago. So let's get to how he was identified. Okay, so this next part I'm getting from theadventurejournal.com. Apparently, a man named Gary Hoffman had been renting an apartment to Mostly Harmless, and the rent had actually gone unpaid for the last six months. So he got a warrant, he went in, checked everything out, and he kind of describes it as if someone had just, like, walked out to do an errand. There were still computers there, his clothes, and he found the ID of a man named Vance Rodriguez. So according to that adventurejournal.com, a bunch of his friends actually reached out to the Collier County Sheriff's office to try to identify them. An old girlfriend got a hold of the sheriff and a spokesman for the department who produced podcasts about the case had no comment. <laughs> so they're not saying shit, but everybody's saying they're like 100% sure. And these friends have like come up with these photographs of Vance or denim, whatever you want to call him, but it's literally him. The The pictures are identical, so he's been found, and everybody that worked on this case, I know some people put their blood, sweat, and tears into it. I know I spread his information every chance I got. I'm just happy that now we have a name, and maybe his family can come claim him. Now, in the adventure article... They kind of go into more detail about his personal life and some of the demons he was facing. But, you know, I'm not going to get into all that. If you want those details, go check the article out. If you want to know more about the big mystery and how it all went down, go check out my podcast that I did about it called Vanished Family of the Mostly Harmless Hiker. I've got excerpts from the detectives and it just gives you a lot more details and information on what exactly happened with this case. But I'm super happy to say, Mostly Harmless slash Vance Rodriguez is now a closed case in Vanished in the Valley world. So again, I'm apologizing for my voice. If you guys like have any miracle remedies for for fucked up vocal cords, I don't know, like some like old school voodoo, I'm like super down to try anything at this point. You can contact me at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com. You can go check out the Instagram, which is vanishedinthevalleyathena, or the parlor account, which is also at vanishedinthevalleyathena. So come check it out. Come say hi. Give me some fucking spells and remedies to fix my voice. It's killing me, guys. 
I'm so sorry. We're subjecting you to how it sounds. I'm sure it's fucking terrible. But if I can hang in there, because now we're about to move on. So now I'm going to tell you about the vanishing of 13-year-old Pat Cress. He vanished in 1983 and has never been seen or heard of since. Around 1 p.m. on Saturday, April 30th, 1983, in Kirkland, Washington, Pat called his parents to come pick him up from a sleepover. They had arranged to meet at a nearby grocery store, but Pat never showed up at this grocery store. And at first, I'm like, that's hella weird. Why didn't the parents just like go to the house where he had the sleepover? But then I remembered it's 1983 in fucking Kirkland, Washington, and you would literally have to like pull out maps back in the day. So I get it. You know, you meet at a landmark, something like that. It's, I don't know. At first I thought it was weird, but 1983 seems pretty normal. So his parents show up there. They're waiting and nothing. His parents decided to call the police when he didn't show up. But check this out. The police suggested he had run away. By evening, his parents had decided something really, really bad had happened to him. Over the next two weeks, there were actually rumors going around that Pat's classmates and their high school brothers and sisters, one of the rumors, like the main rumor, was that Pat's head had been bashed in and his body was lying in water somewhere. A little more than two weeks later, that rumor ceased to be a rumor. Pat's body was found. His father, Dick Cress, says one of the most painful moments in his decade-long nightmare was learning that his wife, Katie, was at their home without him when there was that dreaded knock on the door. I mean, that would be so fucking terrible. You're home alone trying to find your son, and that's when the detectives come to tell you they found your son's dead body. And there's just so many strange things about this case, you guys. It's like, how do these middle schoolers and high schoolers know what happened to them? Yet, no police, no detectives. They never got to the bottom of this rumor. So, Pat's body was found submerged in a water-filled ditch. On him was a radio, a wallet, but they were buried under some leaves and debris at a construction site not far from where his friend's home was or the Safeway where he was actually supposed to be meeting his parents. Apparently, the parents had, like, done their own search and they actually came within 10 feet of Pat's body. And his dad just says, like, thank God they didn't see his body that day or the memories just would have been too much for them to handle. But it's like, again... How did these kids know about Pat's murder before the police, before any adults? And here we are, decades later, it's a cold case. So there are like a bunch of different witness accounts, but a lot of it is just fiction. A lot of it's hard to tell what's true. And there's different stories. While Pat reportedly agreed to walk to Safeway to meet his parents that day, the two boys that he was with at this sleepover say that's not actually how it went. They're saying that Pat sat down and he actually waited for someone to come get him at the house. Now, they don't know, or there's no definitive way of knowing, who was going to pick him up. 
But these two kids remember that Pat suddenly announces, there's my ride, I'm going to go, and he walks out the door. So what happened? Why did he tell his parents to pick him up at Safeway? And why did these two boys say he got picked up from the house? Something's fishy. Even to this day, these guys, now men, stick to what their statement was back in the 80s. They say they saw Pat go around the far side of the car and turn away. And then he doesn't see anything else. This account takes the case in a whole other direction. Because according to Pat's family... He knew his parents were picking him up at Safeway. Another strange thing about this case is that Pat's body was found with a transistor radio. And the police kind of think that the radio was bought as a part of, you know, a set. Usually they come like walkie-talkies, so there's two of them. But the friends, the family, nobody can identify this walkie-talkie. And no one has the other one to the set. At this point, Pat's father is 81 His mother has already passed away, and they don't have answers. 36 years later, you guys, 36 years, there is a $5,000 cash reward for information that leads to an arrest and charge in the case. Call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS, that's 8477, or contact King County Sheriff's Department, Detective Mike Millis. And you can email him at mike.mellis at kingcounty.gov. So, yeah, there's just a lot of strange things about the case. How do kids know about how he died and where his body would be found? And police never were able to identify what happened. So, like I always say, if you know what happened and you don't want to talk to the police contact me, let me know the information, and I will contact the police for you. Let's try to get Pat's father some justice. He's 81 years old, you guys, and I'm sure he would love to know what happened to his son before he goes to his grave. I mean, his mom already died of cancer, so it's like this is the last family member. Somebody out there in Washington knows what happened. And I know I got a lot of listeners up in there, and Camus, and Olympia, so what's up guys, if you guys know anything, please email me, contact me through the Instagram, or the parlor, let me know what you guys know, let's try to solve this case, and bring justice to Pat and his family, so now we have a total change of subject, on July 10th, 2016, 27-year-old Seth Rich was found with two gunshot wounds in his back in the Bloomingdale neighborhood of D.C. near his favorite bar. I'm getting this information from neonrevolt.com. This article just came out today. Go check it out. Rich basically did die from his wounds, and it led to rampant speculation as the motive for his murder. Rich was the man that basically leaked all the Pizzagate information to WikiLeaks and is kind of blamed for making Hillary lose the 2016 election. But apparently, after he leaked those documents, he had a huge target on his back. He also carried around with him a little USB thumb drive. Now, apparently, people in high places wanted this thumb drive, 
And right now, they're alleging two DEA agents hired MS-13 gang members to murder Rich. Well, not actually to murder him. They actually hired the gang members to hold him up to get the thumb drive. But apparently, as things do go wrong with fucking moron gang members, shit went bad and they ended up killing this guy. So what's going on today is there's a new whistleblower and some testimony has come to light. The person's name is Joseph Rizzotti. Joseph Rizzotti is a DEA agent, and according to this whistleblower, someone considered a quote-unquote cleaner by higher-ups in Washington, D.C. So, according to this whistleblower, Joseph Rizzotti is, in fact, the man who hired two MS-13 agents to shake down Seth that night. But like I said, it all went bad. The USB key was fucking taken, but he was killed. It's like, what was on this USB device that it was worth killing someone? What the fuck? Like, why do I keep coming across fucking agents in our government killing our citizens? Not going about shit the right way, the lawful way. But apparently the whistleblower would go on to say that they would take the USB key and flee the scene because they never intended to kill Rich in the first place. And in a moment of panic... The young man's life was cut short. If there's any doubt this man actually exists, you can find his name, Joseph Rosati, in a list of DEA agents in a 2010 lawsuit where he's cited as one of the defendants. Oh, how surprising. So, if he's, if Joseph Rosati is one responsible for Seth Rich getting murdered, who put him up to it and why? And all this information that I'm telling you, they're basically stating it's from several hours of leaked testimony they listened to today. And nothing was redacted. All the names were there. And that's where they're getting this information. They're saying this is the same case that Lynn Wood, one of the fucking attorneys for Trump, was referencing on Twitter today. So basically what he's saying is he's going to summarize a multi-hour long testimony of somebody with the alias Ryan White, who delivered and recorded over several months, wherein White claims he was arrested by the very same man who was involved in the murder of Seth Rich and the subsequent cover-up, Joseph Rizzotti. They're saying White worked as a private investigator himself, and he had contact with all types of different government agencies, from the DEA to Secret Service agents. And in his testimony, White would say that a Secret Service agent, Sean Bridges, and another DEA agent, Carl Mark Force, would eventually be arrested on trumped-up charges related to Bitcoin theft and laundering on the Silk Road dark market. And if you don't know what that was, it was like this old school, like dark web drug market that hella people were using and getting away with for days. Bridges actually ends up getting sentenced Tuesday in connection with stealing from a digital wallet belonging to the government, currently valued at about $11.3 million. So if you want to look into this, go to neonrevolt.com and he literally lays out all the information he got from these leaked documents regarding this. And apparently 
this Rossetti guy has been fucking dirty and just acting outside our laws for a very long time. But the problem is nobody has the will to stand up to him and take him down. And that's just kind of how our government goes. They get something on you, then they own you. We see it time after time. So, I don't know. A a guy who was brave enough to fucking let people know what was going on with the DNC, leaking these documents to Julian Assange, he's dead. How many times do whistleblowers have to lose everything, including their lives, just to bring the truth forward? It's fucking... Is this really America, guys? Really? And this whole fucking storming of the Capitol? What the fuck was the point of that? Is that theater? More theater for us with the politics? What was accomplished with that? I don't know, guys. Shit's crazy. Um, I hope you like our new day, Thursdays. I'm going to cut this episode a little short because my voice is just like straight up. Bye-bye. I just wanted to thank all of our downloaders. Camus. Washington. Thank you guys. You guys have been around forever. And Brooklyn, (laughs) Brooklyn, New York. Where did you guys come from? I look up and suddenly you have my second place spot. That's what's up. Thank you. I will be back next week, hopefully with a voice that doesn't sound all scratchy and shitty. But in the meantime, be aware and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao, ciao.